Why don't you have a seat uh, this morning? And as you're being seated, I'd love for you to uh, either turn in a Bible or bring up maybe on a device you have with you the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter, you can start in chapter 1. We're going to land eventually in chapter 9. Uh, as you can see there on the screen, if you're new to reading, studying, learning about the Bible, uh, Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Um, it's kind of towards the middle, middle of the Bible. If you find Psalms, Proverbs, uh, keep going to the right, and you'll eventually run into one of the 66 chapters known as Isaiah. Uh, we're not going to go through all 66 chapters um, over these weeks, but uh, just give you a moment to get there. And um, these days, unlike any other time probably on our calendar, are filled with amazing amounts of tradition. Um, so much tradition, whether it be uh, the concerts you go to, your kids have at school. I know we have a few on the calendar coming up uh, with our kids' schools. Um, the music you listen to, um, right now there might be a playlist on uh, your Spotify playlist that you are playing regularly now because we've moved from Thanksgiving into Christmas. Um, I know in our house I'm longing for the day when I, when I get to stop listening uh, to Amy Grant's Tennessee Christmas. Uh, um, over and over and over again, putting up the tree yesterday, and that's what's playing through our house is Amy Grant's Tennessee Christmas. Um, trees, lights. Uh, we, for some of you, 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 part of a tradition of your family is you go searching for that perfect tree. I mean, you're out in the woods, you're out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you have your saw, you have a chainsaw, you are dragging your kids along, like looking for that perfect tree. For some, it's the tree in a box that you put in the basement or you put in the garage or the closet and you put it up. We have those types of traditions. You have lights uh, that go up. I took Pastor Jim's advice this year and went new. Um, instead of trying to unwind that ball of lights that's in the basket, the, the tub, we're going new this year. And um, so we put up lights. And then there's the movies, the movies that are on, it seems like, repeat. Um, throughout this year. Many of you have already watched again and again and again and heard Charlie Brown ask, what is the meaning of Christmas? Uh, over and over and over again. And some of you have watched countless times already, even in these early days in November, Clark Griswold fall off the roof countless times. Candles. Even this part of our service and our services over these weeks ahead, we light candles. We light Advent candles. This, ho this candle today representing hope, a tradition. Um, that for some is very familiar. Um, the church uh, my family grew up going to, this was a part of our Advent uh, practice, was lighting Advent candles. For some, this is maybe new uh, to you today. But even as Pastor Jeff uh, said just a few moments ago, that with traditions, we can easily miss what they're all about, why we do them. And especially as we move into what uh, was as described as Pastor Jim started the service as Advent. This is the weeks of Advent. These four Sundays leading up to Christmas is known as Advent, where we remember the arrival, if you will, or the coming of Jesus, coming in a little form, the form of a little baby boy, taking on flesh. God who created, as we read from John chapter 1 earlier, God who created everything we see and created us became one of us. That's what we're thinking about, his arrival. In these days, we just don't want to kind of go through the routine of lighting candles and preaching sermons and going to services. But really, friends, we want to be shaped by the season. Um, some of you know this, and, and maybe many of you don't. That's why I feel it's important to talk about or share with you that the Advent season, the weeks of Advent, actually start the church calendar. 
uh, the liturgical calendar. We don't talk here even hope maybe a lot about uh, the church calendar. Um, but Advent, these weeks of Advent are like the January of the church calendar. Uh, it, it starts our year, so to speak, as followers of Jesus. And those who put the Advent or the, excuse me, the liturgical calendar together, there was a reason. They put this at the very beginning of the year to say every year, every, see, every year that starts, you're going to remind yourself, think about this story. It's that important. That is to be embedded in this church calendar. So over these weeks of Christmas, over these weeks of Advent, we learn, a reminder, we rehearse this story. And to help us be shaped by it and not just kind of be shaped by the culture or by what's happening, the rush and the, the chaos and everything else that goes on these, these weeks ahead, we want to provide some resources. So a few things. One, we have some calendars that are great for kids, Advent calendars. Uh, you can find those at our kids' check-in center, which is right out next to the desk, which is right out these doors to your right. Uh, it's a calendar. Every day has an activity, a verse. Uh, you can do as a family if you have young kids. Uh, we also, uh, this evening, you'll be getting an email with a Advent devotional. Um, we didn't print it out because it's 68 pages. Um, so we didn't print that out for you. Sorry about that. Um, um, but you can print it out. You can save it on your device, have it with you wherever you go. Uh, but it's, it, there's two devotionals every day of Advent. And I want to let you know it's not something we created. We are borrowing it from another church with their permission. We didn't steal it, um, hijack it. Um, we are sharing it with their permission, but it's, there's two devotionals every day of, of December. Uh, morning, evening, afternoon, however you want to do it. There's prayer, there's scripture, there's a devotional reading. And it's just every day to be reminded again of what, is, what are these days about? Why are we celebrating this? Why are we talking about it? And not just to think about it, but we, our desire is that it would impact how we live our lives. So that's, that's the importance of Advent. As we think about Christ's arrival, it's not just thinking about his first arrival when he was born in Bethlehem, but for us who live on this side of his birth, it's, it's for us also to think about his second arrival when he's coming back. And that's what the, the importance of this season. So I hope you have Isaiah uh, in front of you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, if you don't, don't worry. The verses that we're going to talk about will be up on the screen so you can follow along. And I, I readily admit that as we open the book of Isaiah, some of you today are like, you know a little bit about Isaiah. You know uh, a little bit of the background of what was going on in this pretty large book in the Old Testament. Uh, some of you, as you approach Isaiah, you're like, I have, I've heard of it. But other than that, I couldn't tell you anything about Isaiah. So I want to take just a few moments today just to give a bit of background. So you and I are on the same page um, as we're studying, learning all we can from these familiar chapters. We're going to look at four chapters uh, over these weeks. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 35, and Isaiah 7. So you can see we're going to jump around um, this book. These are passages that you find in uh, Christmas cards. Christmas carols. These are verses that are somewhat well known in Isaiah, uh, but sometimes we miss the greater context of what was taking place. So let me just take a few moments just to give a sense of background so we're all on the same page as we jump in uh, to this series. So following um, a little bit of biblical history here, so King Solomon is the king, King Solomon's David's son. Um, following his reign as king, the people of Israel, the nation, the people of Israel, uh, or there's 12 tribes. 
The 12 tribes of Israel, maybe you've heard of that. So the 12 tribes of Israel following his reign, because of war and tension and conflict, this kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. It becomes a divided kingdom. So you have two kingdoms, the north and the south. The northern kingdom is here in the green. Uh, it, It makes up 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel are in that green area there. Then you have the southern port, the southern kingdom, which is the purplish color, uh, and that's called Judah. And that area, though, that makes up two of the tribes. So you have ten tribes at the top in the north, the northern kingdom, and you have two tribes in the bottom. You have Israel and you have Judah. And those two kingdoms, even though they're of the same people, they didn't get along. And there's conflict, there's tension, there's wars, there's rumors of wars all throughout that region. So each kingdom, north and south, has a king. And that king rules that kingdom. So in the midst of these kingdoms, there's prophets. The prophets speak on behalf of God to the kingdom, to the people, to the king. So in the northern kingdom, these are some maybe familiar names. You have the prophets of Jonah. Maybe for the story of Jonah and the whale, he was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Amos, Hosea, they're all in the northern kingdom. They're prophesying in the north. And then in the south, uh, we have Isaiah and Micah. Those are two of the prophets uh, that were in the south. Isaiah and Micah, uh, there's a book called Micah in the Old Testament. They're contemporaries. They were living basically at the same time. And even some of the things Isaiah says, Micah says. There's a lot of similarities between those two. And I want to just read, hopefully you have Isaiah chapter 1 in front of you. I just want to read verse 1. We get a kind of a sense of who this guy is. Isaiah 1.1 says, The vision concerning Judah, again, that's that region, the kingdom in the south, and Jerusalem. That's the city, the capital, if you will, of Judah. uh, That Isaiah, the son of Amos saw during the reigns, and these are the kings that Isaiah reign, or prophesied during. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are the four kings that ruled during the time that Isaiah prophesied. So we're not going to talk a lot about all those kings. Uzziah was a good king. Jotham was a fairly good king. Ahaz is an awful king. And we'll talk about him actually a lot over these weeks. Just made some very poor decisions, which had long-lasting consequences. And then you get to Hezekiah. He was a decent king, did actually really well. And then there's one king that's not mentioned in here, but it was towards the end of Isaiah's life, and it's Manasseh. And this is important to note, uh, because it was actually something Pastor Jim talked about last week in Hebrews 11 and 12. Um, Manasseh was a king who really did not like what Isaiah was saying. Now, what Isaiah would do as a prophet is, you know, he would speak on behalf of God, and many times the things he was saying to the king, the king didn't like. The king's making decisions, well, this is what we're going to do, this is what I think is the right thing to do, and many times, you know, uh, especially depending on the bent of the king, if they wanted to follow God or didn't want to follow God, uh, Manasseh was a king who did not want to follow God, and Isaiah would say some things like, king, you should reconsider what you're doing. And Manasseh had enough of him. And what tradition tells us, and I guess tradition, it's not, I can't quote scripture and verse for you in the Bible, but it's tradition. What tradition has for us is that Manasseh had enough of Isaiah. And he hollowed out a log, stuck Isaiah in the log, and sawed him in two. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, I believe it is, there's this passage, and Pastor Jim talked about it last week. If you didn't hear the message, it's on our website. But there's this passage in Isaiah, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, where it goes through all these people who lived by faith. And many of the things were good that happened, but then you get to these, this portion, this chapter, this paragraph, that really some bad things happened to people who lived by faith. And, and one of the things it mentions in there is some were sawed in two. And what tradition tells us, and this tradition tells us, is that Isaiah was one of the ones who was sawed literally in two. Because this king didn't like, had really enough of them, just said, I'm going to get rid of them. So Isaiah, this is the man. This is a prophet. He's a poet. The, the, the words we're going to read, really, he uses so much poetry and imagery and metaphors. and It's poems that he would use to speak prophetically into the situation that the nation of Israel was facing. So over these weeks, we are going to use this prophetic poet to learn more about hope, peace, joy, and love. And how we live our lives based on these realities. Isaiah 8, we'll start at the end of chapter 8 today, moving to really chapter 9, as we think about this theme of hope. So again, as I said earlier, Ahaz was not a good king, did not lead well, did not rule well, and really uh, made a very poor decision, many poor decisions, but one in particular was making an alliance or a treaty, if you will, an agreement with the nation of Assyria, the, the kingdom of Assyria. Now in this context of Isaiah 8, uh, 9 that we're going to talk about today, Assyria was like the superpower. Like they were it. They ruled, they dominated, they had the military power, they had the monetary, they had money, they had power, they ruled. They were the superpower at this time. So Ahaz is king, he's in the south, again he's in the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was coming up against him, trying to take over. He fought them off, they went back north, but then they're coming again. Like they regrouped, we're coming at you again. So now he knows they're coming. So he has a choice. And we'll talk about this on Christmas Eve uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 7. He has a choice. Do I, what Isaiah is saying to him, uh, um, uh, Ahaz, you can trust God, or you can trust in the, you can put your trust in the hands of this foreign king, Assyria. And what Ahaz does in that moment is he says, I'm not going to trust God. And I'm going to trust this king. And that decision has long-term consequences for him as a king and for the people of God. And uh, that's kind of the context of what Isaiah is speaking into. Basically, things aren't good in, in Judah. Things aren't good in the north. Things aren't good in the south. There's war. There's killing. There's murder. There's economic upheaval. There's political upheaval. Things aren't good, and they're not going to get any better right now. And that's what Isaiah speaks into. We get a sense of it in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21. Distress and hunger, they will roam throughout the land, roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward and curse. Notice, because of what they decided, what are they going to do? They're going to curse their king. Like, why did you do this? Because of what happens to them as people. They're going to curse their king and not just their king, but also their God. Basically asking or saying, God, why did you allow this to happen? 
Why did you allow us to be uh, kind of carried off as captives? Why did you allow us to be decimated by foreign kings? So things aren't good. And we get another sense of it in verse 22. It says, then they look toward the earth. So they look upward and they look down. They look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's not just like the sun goes away, darkness. <laughs> it, but it, you know, it, sometimes it feels like us right now in Northeast Ohio. It's 4.30, it's pitch black. It feels like midnight. It's nothing about physical darkness. It's talking about heaviness, oppression, discouragement. Just that darkness is all around. Things aren't good and they're only going to get worse. And then in the midst of that, Isaiah flips, Isaiah flips a switch, so to speak. He, empowered by the Spirit, looks, so to speak, into the future, can see a new reality that's coming, and he speaks it out prophetically. In the midst of what's not going well, Isaiah, under the power of the Spirit, sees something beyond their current circumstances. And here's this poem, if you will, this prophetic poem, that he speaks in the midst of these discouraging circumstances. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. So there's a change from gloom to no more gloom. Those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun. We'll come back to this in a moment. And the land of Nephtali. But in the future, so right now he's humbled it. It's dark, it's discouraging. But in the future... He will honor this land. He will honor the Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness, those who are walking with this heaviness, discouragement, have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and you increase their joy. Right now, no one is celebrating. No one's like, life is great. I love getting out of bed every day. They're discouraged. There's no rejoicing. But Isaiah sees something different. He says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. Now for us, we're like, rejoice at the harvest. Like, hey, all right, harvest, yay. You know, but for them, harvest was everything. You know, it's everything. If you don't have a good harvest, you're dead. So he's using metaphors that connect with them. You think of what happens at, at Cavs games, at the Indians, I would say the Browns, but they're really struggling right now. You know, but like so much rejoicing that takes place there. But, but when you see these professional teams, when they do something well, there's like a natural, like people stand to their feet and they rejoice. That's the idea when these people see what God is doing in the midst of what used to be. There's rejoicing. They rejoice as people like, like rejoice at the harvest. As, ren as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, that's actually a reference back to Judges 6, 7, and 8 about uh, Gideon, the king, or the judge, if you will, that defeated the Midianites with just 300 men. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be done away with. And we'll pause there for a moment. Isaiah sees a different reality than what's taking place in his current circumstances. And these words that Isaiah says prophetically are not predictions. It's not, gee, I hope this happens someday. But he states them as facts. This will happen. People who were in darkness will see light. 
Where there's death, there'll be hope. Where there's despair, there'll be rejoicing. He speaks of them as if they've already taken place. They're in the past tense. The people walking in darkness have seen. It's already taken place. Isaiah, for him, in the moment, things aren't good, but Isaiah is able to see beyond his circumstances to a future reality, and he knows this isn't the way it's always going to be. And that hope provides hope in the future, in the present. And Isaiah is not filled with despair. No, friends, instead he's filled with hope. Isaiah is a man who's filled with hope instead of despair. Instead of hopelessness. And I wonder today what maybe you might bring to this gathering a sense of hopelessness. I don't know what it might be. If it's family related, work related, health related. Maybe it's just honestly just general fatigue of the constant headlines that we are being bombarded with. I don't know about you, but I love that we have incredible access to information and news, and we know what's happening in other parts of the world, in other states, in other cities, even in our, in our state. Like, I, I love that we have those, the access to all that, but I think we would honestly admit, at times it gets weary. You get weary when it's one story after the other, after the other, after the other, and it just gets overwhelming. And you look at what's happening on a national scale, on a world scale, and you might feel a sense, honestly, of hopelessness. And I hope today that we would be able to be filled with hope like Isaiah was, even in the midst of a sense of, of feelings of hopelessness that we might even bring here today. See, Isaiah, based on what he was able to see, Isaiah saw dark places becoming places filled with light. He saw dark places that were becoming places filled with light. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says again, Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And in the past, and I want to talk about these places. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor the Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea. We read places or these lands, Zebulun and Naphtali, and we're like... I don't even know how to pronounce that, and I don't even know where those places are. So what does that even mean? It's interesting when you dig into those places, it's actually people. Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's actually a third that is right by them geographically. It's Asher, the tribe of Asher. And these three tribes are in the north, where we talked about up north, the northern kingdom. And these three tribes, these two tribes specifically that Zebulun and Naphtali that, that Isaiah is talking about here, were places that when they inherited or, or took possession, if you will, of their land, when they settled after all the battles and wars and God's people said, this is the promised land, this is the land I'm going to give you. And when the, the tribe of, ne the people, it's the tribe, the group of Naphtali and, and Zebulun and Asher, when they settled in their land, there was still some people who were not, uh, who were not uh, Jews in that place. And so now you have these people setting up homes and camp and life and setting down roots and having families and growing and multiplying. And, and so now they're rubbing shoulders with all these other people who live around them who don't worship God the same way they do. So what happens over time is that these tribes begin become influenced by those around them. And they start following the ways of their neighbors, the way they follow their gods, and the way they live. 
And these tribes, these people, were actually some of the first to be carried off into exile. When the Assyrians come through, and they come through, when the Assyrians come through, these are some of the first people that are carried off into exile and wiped out. There's darkness. There's heaviness. There's no hope in this place. But Isaiah sees something different. And he says, where there's distress, where there's gloominess, where there's despair, where there's sadness, where there's hopelessness, there's going to be hope. There's going to be light. There's going to be rejoicing in this place. This dark place, light is going to invade. And it's not just a place, not just a region or a city, it's filled with people. And that's also something Isaiah sees. As he looks forward, he sees forgotten people are now being honored. Forgotten people. Again, we read these passages. Isaiah 9 might be well known to some of you here. We read passages like this. It says, in the past, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea. He's very specific. By the way of the sea along the Jordan. That's the Jordan River that ran from the north all the way down to the south. So who is he talking about here? He's talking about a region, Galilee. That might be a well-known region to you today, Galilee. Galilee had along, uh, on, the, on the western border of it, uh, there was a trade route, a major trade route, that in this day, people from the north would come all the way through the northern kingdom and would go all the way down to Egypt. So you have people from all multiple nations, people groups traveling up and down this trade route. So then you have Jews settling in this region in the north, especially as they come back from exile, settling back up into the north. So now you have them being influenced by all these different nations, people that are traveling up and down. And what happens when people, when we make long road trips, we have to make pit stops. We make them in our cars. Imagine what it was like on this day when you're traveling by donkey, like walking, you stopped at every major city you could. So you have all these people traveling up and down this trade route and they would stop in Galilee and they would influence the people that lived in Galilee. And so much so that Galilee, this region, developed a reputation. The people of Galilee were people that would be described as lived on the other side of the tracks. We see this mindset when actually Jesus was on earth. There's a story in John chapter 1. We're not going to turn there, but John chapter 1. Philip, who is one of Jesus' disciples, goes to this man, Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, I've got to tell you something. We found the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, praying for. He's here. And he says, he is Jesus of Nazareth. Now for us, today, we hear Nazareth. Obviously, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Like, no big deal. But in that day and time, Nathaniel says this, which shows the attitude that Jews would have had towards people that lived in Galilee, which is where Nazareth is. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? My parents grew up in a city uh, just north of Boston, fairly large city uh, north of Boston called Lynn. 
And there was a, there is, I don't know if it's still there today, or saying, the city's there, but the saying, I don't know if the saying is still active today. But I remember my parents telling me a number of times when I was growing up, talk about their, where they grew up and their home life and what they were like as kids and teenagers and those types of things. But there was this little mantra, motto, if you will, of, uh, of the city of Lynn. And it went this way. Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. You never come out the way you went in. And that was the motto, if you will. That was the mantra. That was the reputation that this community had. I don't know if it's still, I haven't been back to that city in in a number of years, but but that was the motto. There was like, you don't go there. And, and, And we're sorry, like the mindset is, we're sorry if you have to live there. And the mindset of Lynn is really nothing good could come out of that place. When people in this culture, it's lost sometimes in our culture today, but when people in this culture that we're talking about here in the Bible today, especially first century, when they heard anywhere, any community in Galilee, Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? And then you have this other interesting story um, in John chapter 7. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at a feast celebrating a, a, a feast that Jews would celebrate. And there's this debate back and forth with him and some religious leaders and they're talking to each other. And, and then you have this one person um, ask the question and talk about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, the one people have been waiting for, the Jews have been waiting for. This person asked the question, they said, can, can the Messiah come from Galilee? Like, he should be from Jerusalem. Like, this is where God's people really come. Like, Jerusalem, the temple's there. But those backwoods, those other side of the tracks people, like, not, he could never come from there. And what Isaiah sees prophetically is that these people that have been forgotten, they don't really care about them. They don't matter. They matter. And forgotten people are being honored. Keep your finger in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Let's just jump really quick to the New Testament. I want to show you this in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We see this, this reality, what Isaiah is talking about, come true. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> says this, when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, that's where he grew up, that's where he was raised. Mary Joseph lived in Nazareth, that's where he was raised. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. He traveled north, further into Galilee, not away from Galilee. Capernaum is like in it, right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. He set up shop. He, he lived among the people there. And it was by the lake in the area, notice this, in the area, Isaiah 9, of Zebulun and Naphtali. Naphtali. And it's not just random like Matthew thought, oh, this might be a good idea to throw in here. It's intentional. And it says, Matthew says, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, some 700 plus years earlier, 
the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Friends, hope came to this region. And hope wasn't just a good feeling or an emotion or optimism. Hope is a person. And light has dawned in a dark place because hope showed up. And light has dawned to people that are forgotten because hope showed up. And hope showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And I wonder today, as you come to this place, again, I don't know what that feeling of hopelessness might be, might be the cause of that feeling of hopelessness for you. But friends, I want you to know, just like the people in, in this region, in Galilee, in Zebulun, and Nephtali, who, who there was darkness, there was despair, but because Jesus showed up, there's hope. And maybe today you feel forgotten. You feel like you don't matter. You feel discouraged. And today, based on Jesus moving to this region, coming to this region, might you remember that you're not forgotten. That there's a God who longs to be with you. That's the heart of Christmas. That's the heart of Advent. That God moved towards mankind. And in moving towards mankind, he brought hope. Even if our circumstances are difficult and bad, friends, we can still have hope in the midst of them. It's not avoiding them or being unaware of them or denying things or sweeping them under the rug. But we're very honest with our difficult realities. But even in the midst of it, we can have hope. Because hope is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. How can we rely on this reality? How do we know it's true? And I think it's true because God's promises came true. So we have Jesus in Galilee, moving there, living there, being among those people. And friends, some 700 years before, Isaiah said this, For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. Everyone thinks their child is the most special. The most advanced, the smartest, the most beautiful, handsomest. Everyone thinks their child is the best. And rightfully so. But friends, this child is special. This son that's been given. And the government will be on his Shoulders. The rule and reign of God will be upon him. I don't care if we're Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever political affiliation you uh, bring to this place, friends, I think that is a wonderful verse, that there's coming a day when the government, the rule and reign of God will be on his shoulders. No matter who's ruling, it's coming a day when the government will be on his shoulders. He will bear it well. And he will be called. These are names. These are throne names. They describe what this king, who this king is and what his kingdom is going to be like. He's a wonderful counselor. He has all wisdom, all knowledge. He's so supernaturally wise. He, he's a mighty God. He's a, war, he's a warrior. He has warrior-like strength to defeat his enemies. He's an everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We're going to talk about peace next week. And how God... There's coming a day where there'll be no more war. There'll be peace. 
life like it's meant to be. Now, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness, making the world the way it's meant to be, making things right. And from that time on and forever, in the zeal of the Lord Almighty, will accomplish this. We believe dark places and forgotten people are changed and transformed because a child was born. And not just any child, but the Son of God. So friends, today we kind of apply this in two ways. One, to be reminded of the hope that we possess, the person of Jesus. Those of us who know him as Lord and Savior, we have a living hope. We can find hope even in the midst of hopeless situations because we know God is with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He moved towards us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't forsake us. He moves towards mankind. And he says, I want to be with you. And then there's also that the second application for us is as we experience this hope, it's not something we just hold on to ourselves and say, gee, I am so thankful I've experienced this. But no, we like Jesus move towards those who don't know this hope. Jesus moved into a region that wasn't the most popular place to live. And he identified, rubbed shoulders, lived among, talked with, had put, went to parties, hung out in homes with people that most religious people in that day said, you know what, let's forget about them. <clears throat> Write them off. They're not living the way we live. They don't have the same standards we have. Just ignore them. <clears throat> but Jesus moved towards them. And as we think about being shaped by Advent... Might we be anchored in hope and whatever we face today, knowing that this isn't the end. And at the same time, anchored in the responsibility that we share it with others. Those who maybe we've written off. Those we who have different standards than us. Those who have different ideals than us. Those who have different values than us. That we would move towards them with hope. Let me pray for us and we'll sing a song as we wrap up this morning. God, as I think about this text, this is ancient, this is old, written so many years ago, but yet still alive and speaks to us today. So God, I pray that as we really begin this Advent season as a church, as a family, as a congregation, that we wouldn't just go through the season, the services, the practices, but we'd be shaped by it. We'd be shaped by this hope that Isaiah saw and experienced in the person of Jesus. And we'd be willing to share it, to move towards even unlovable people, difficult people, people who live different than us, different values system than us, people who don't speak the way we speak or act the way we act or their lifestyles make us uncomfortable. God, the reality is we are all without hope before you came. So Lord, I'm thankful that you moved towards us to share hope, to give us hope. And I pray we would do the same based on what we've experienced in you. So help us to see our world differently, see our neighborhoods differently, see people differently, even based on Isaiah 9 today. I'm thankful that a child has been born. The Son of God came to earth 
and lived among us, moved into the neighborhood and showed us who God is. Would we accept that call to show people that we rub shoulders with this week who God is? And we pray these things in your name. Amen.